price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, it's Jackie Worm Times. Browski, she's made of worms. Here to invite you to the Page 7 and Wizard and the Bruiser live show in January. We're going to be in Chicago. We're going to be in Pontiac. We're going to be in Milwaukee. So come out and visit us. You can go to lastpodcastnetwork.com slash p7live to get tickets. I think you might like it. It is I, Lady Kremlina Wizard, Holden McNeely. Ooh, we're married now. Smooch, smooch, smooch. And it's me, the vegetable gremlin. That's right. All the fun of vegetables now in a gremlin form. I remember that scene where I was in a salad bar. Vegetable gremlin. Vegetable gremlin. I, oh my God. I mean, we're going to, we're jumping to the, we both jumped to the sequel because how can you not? It is so splashy and fucking ludicrous and amazing. I just got so ripped. I'm sorry. Last let night. me let me do the first. Let me do, do the first. Ah, it's me, yeah. Frank Welker. Stripe. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There, perfect. I'm the voice of Fred from Scooby Doo. I mean, <laughs> to be fair though, he plays both the leader evil gremlins in both movies. The fact that they still decided those are two separate gremlins <laughs> is bullshit. Stripe well, you know, and Mohawk are the same. They're fucking the same gremlin essentially. Yeah, they should have just had him like every time. Just Strike comes yeah. out. Stripe comes out. Uh, Gremlins, gotta love them. Can't hate them. Uh, fantastic. I hope you still have a little bit of holiday left in you. I know that we are now technically in the new year upon the release of this recording, but this, we, but I mean, this is barely a holiday movie. It even was released in the middle of the summer, which is hilarious to me. And we'll talk about because it, it was the same day as Ghostbusters, which is incredible. I couldn't imagine what, like, I mean, I can't believe they would release the first Gremlins the same day as the first Ghostbusters. Like, I feel like the Gremlins people should be like, let's wait one month, you know, or might as well wait till Christmas. Uh, but the fact that they did, those movies are like uh, that. What Talk about a hell of a double feature. It's I, wrapping my head around this entire franchise has been one of the weirdest fucking things in the world. Because hold it. I'm going to tell you something right now. The Gremlins scared the shit out of me. As a child, okay, I could see that. They... Uh, there's, there's, there's three main things that made Baby Jake scared of the Gremlins. Okay, number one, I understood how puppets worked. 
I understood that, like, you know, there's you see Sesame Street, that's a puppet. There's a guy's hand in there. But I did not, for the life of me, I did not understand the works of Rick Baker or Chris Wallace. Uh-huh. I didn't understand all the miniaturization and, like, little levers and wires it could use to, like, make this horrifying demon thing alive. In yeah. my eyes, like... Everything in movies was fake. It's a guy in a suit. It's a puppet. But it's they a, were still frightening to, they were, to view upon. We'll get into it. The brain gremlin in Gremlins 2 is uh-huh. a masterwork of engineering. Yeah. So complicated <laughs> that it was like, of course my six-year-old self had yeah. no idea how the I fuck mean, that was I mean, I think real. that the very first, well, I think wait, I- Wait, wait, number two. Uh-huh. They're kid-sized. Yeah. They're kid-sized. So like, this is going to sound weird, but like a big monster- it's over. It's already over. They're just gonna dash you against the rocks or whatever. A gremlin is gonna make it. It's gonna make it real slow. It's gonna be a real fight to the death. <laughs> it's yeah. gonna be a real struggle. And that's a more unpleasant way to go in terms of monster fights. Right. I. I mean, I'm, I imagine if I was a very strong six year old, I could take one gremlin. But like, you're hitting a wave of them. You're just doomed. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And number three, they're born pissed off. They're born angry. Well, besides Gizmo, yeah, the other ones though. They're yeah. born mischievous. No, I would say no. they're born mischievous more than they're born Mohawk angry. Mohawk and Stripe, which as we've established are the same fucking gremlin, are ju- they're just like I am alive and I hate. Yes. And that was weird. That was weird to me as a kid Mm-mm. that these gremlins were just like ah 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 time to hurt things. I was very upset by. It. Right, right. I I think for me going back to the Liking them as a kid. I think that they it was a little dangerous and scary. I think as a kid, yeah, maybe at six years old. I, but I, I, as I grew older and as they started to appear more and more as the afternoon movie on HBO, <laughs> I loved it. And especially the sequel. I think at one point as a kid, I was like, Gremlins 2 is the perfect movie. Or at least it is the most entertaining movie. I, would, I think in my head, I literally said to myself, I'm like, this movie at no point is ever dull, and mm-hmm. therefore it is better than most movies. And I would still, and upon another viewing of it, because I thought maybe it would lose something over time now that I'm older. No, I still love it. I still think it's amazing. I think it's so much fun to watch. It's just, there is, like I said, never a dull moment in Gremlins 2. And yes, it is completely batshit crazy, and it kind of flies off the rails after a while. <laughs> But I'm actually fine with that because the absurdity, the parody, the the meta self-deprecation, everything going on in that movie, it's just so hilariously, like, evilly funny, devilishly funny. And I just absolutely love it, especially, like, our main guy, our main couple are just so fun fun to watch get fucked over. There's just it's so enjoyable to see them and it's not because you want them to get fucked over, but there's just something about how innocent that they, they are and how absurdly dirty and evil the gremlins are that it's just I don't know, it's just it's a perfect balance. The first gremlins is this amazing um it had to have been made at that specific time and place in the 80s. It had right. to be Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment picking up a script by Christopher Columbus directed by Joe Dante because it is a mashup of what were two uh, separate genres of black and white movies that had like infused itself into the brains of the generation that was coming up then. Uh The small town like Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, and the small town creature feature like Invasion of the Body Snatchers or Them or The Blob. So by combining these two into one unimovie it like 
just broke all these old boundaries, and it was just kind of a love letter. And then let's also add a a nice thin thin layer of comedy over the entire thing as well. Yeah, it's always it's a horror comedy, which was novel, I think, at the time. Oh yeah, and led to other great, you know, ridiculous horror comedy films. I would even say like Evil Dead Two and stuff like that could be tossed in there is like coming about around the same time. What you have to understand in Gremlins 1 is that what you see as a series of belabored jokes about kitchen appliances that don't work. I love all that. I love is that game. the 80s that, uh, equivalent of having a, a like a, a, a bunch of social media jokes. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, while we have the internet and smartphones that revolutionized the way we lived, uh, in the 80s, they had electronic juicers. <laughs> Well, then you really and get, the bathroom buddy. You really get it more in Gremlins too, with cable television, genetics manipulation, and uh, I believe frozen yogurt is another one. Oh, it was, they were all things very specific to 1989, 1990. Well, and of course, you know, Daniel Clamp, Donald Trump. It's like very one to one. Even though, uh, as we'll get into. The actor was like too positive for him to be like the weird Trump figure, so they just changed the role. <laughs> the whole thing's a lot of fun. I'm glad it exists. It led to, and and it of course led to other great tiny creature films such <laughs> as Critters and Ghoulies. What a hilarious thing that it started. Oh yeah, and just everything about it. It also had this like super marketable plushy gizmo situation for merchandising and everything. So it was like at all at, at the same time super cute and adorable and and. It's rating PG, and at the same time, this like totally dirty. You know, you've got your flasher gremlin. But then when they all take over the bar and everything, this is just the, the, gremlins will always be something that I love, and I do think. And I was even noticing this because I posted about my love for gremlins on Twitter, and I did notice. Uh, what was your What was your post? A few. Uh, I just said gremlins rules, and then I said, <laughs> and then under that, I said, yes, I'm high. Uh, but it does rule, and there were a bunch of people on there being like. Uh, there was one guy who was like, watch it sober. It's not as good. I'm like, Mm-mm. no, I love it. And and somebody else was like, yeah, I tried to watch it for the first time a few weeks ago. I just don't get it. You know, I, I do wonder that this movie gains a lot of nostalgia po- factor points when rewatching it. Because I just have nothing but love for the damn franchise. I think both movies, to the point where I'm flabbergasted that we've never gotten a third one. I'm shocked. Completely shocked. You know what? To get people in the mood for the Gremlins zone, to get you like receptive to this specific 1980s weirdness that made this movie possible, Mary, can you play the uh, 1984 Gremlins cereal commercial real quick? Are you hungry? Hungry as a Gremlin? Here's Gremlins cereal. Gremlins, Gremlins, bite after bite. What a tasty way to satisfy a Gremlin appetite. Gremlins is a deliciously sweet, crunchy cereal that satisfies the hungry little gremlin. That's in all of us. Gremlins, gremlins, bite after bite. What a tasty way to satisfy a gremlin appetite. Gremlins cereal is part of this complete breakfast. Gremlin, yum, yum. Okay, this is the era we're talking about, okay? <laughs> it is... It is not the era you know now. We are living in the past. So this film, much like it is a mashup of genres and time periods and all of these things, this the background of it is a mashup of all of these different important players in Hollywood at the time. First of all, you've got Christopher Columbus, or I'm sorry, Chris Columbus, not Christopher Columbus. Uh, Chris Columbus, who we've we covered a about lot before. in the uh, Home Alone episode. So I'm going to briefly cover him. In this episode, and you can get even more on that one. Uh, he's more known as a director. He did movies such as 
Home Alone, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, and the first two Harry Potter films. He grew up in Ohio. He went to NYU's film school, and he took a factory job to pay for it, where he toiled away at a short film screenplay that got him his first agent. He also wrote a spec script at that time that got him a job under Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment, and that spec script was called Gremlins. It was creatures that were conjured in the minds of World War II mechanics, originally as they were blamed for mechanical failures in aircraft as a joke. And we even get that from the neighbor. What's his name again? Uh, uh, Mr. Putterman. Mr. Putterman even talks about that in Gremlins. I mean, he's all drunk and he's talking about how Gremlins got into his machine. Now, number one, at this time, this is still like Spielberg on the rise, not yeah. like you know, movie legend Steven Spielberg. I mean, he's he's he made some killers. He, he by made this E.T. Point. and Jaws. He, he made E.T. He made Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, he's he's crushing it. He's crushing it, but like it's still he's but this this expansion into Amblin Entertainment yes. to creating not just his movies, but creating this weird Steven Un- uh, Wow, I almost said Steven Universe. Steven Spielberg Universe of Media. I'll allow it. Is <laughs> Um, of course, uh, with uh, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall on board with him. And um, Christopher Columbus's script is written on spec, and it is straight up a comedy horror, like with a heavy emphasis on horror. Uh, I found excerpts from the uh, second draft of the script, and in there, the gremlins just fucking murder people. They murder the mom. They eat the dog in front of Billy as he watches helplessly. Yes. The mom's head gets decapitated and thrown down the stairs at Billy. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's like uh, Pete, the little kid, uh, you know, the Corey Feldman character, gets dragged away by his scarf and like killed in the bushes. And on top of that, there's no gizmo. There's no gizmo. It's just he picks up the the mogwai and like it becomes Stripe, basically. Right, right. And it's just this like, haha, you know, trouble with tribbles. Be careful of weird, exotic tradesmen and their promises. And the Magua isn't from Chinatown. He picks it up in, like, Hong Kong. Anyway, there's a lot of little differences, but it's much, much darker. And since Steven Spielberg picked up the script, E.T. comes out, and he recognizes, like, the power of merchandising. So one of the first things he does is, we need a good guy. We need a we need, we need Gizmo. And um, basically, uh, the filmmakers kind of struggle with, uh, like, how to make Gizmo, what to do. Steven Spielberg doesn't like any of the designs. Uh, the designs for the uh, Mogwai and the Gremlin are actually drawn by Chris Columbus in his original script, but mm-hmm. like they still need to elaborate on it. And literally what they end up doing is uh, for their final pitch for Gizmo as the good Gremlin, they just base it on Steven Spielberg's like uh, Basset Hound. Gizmo, by the way, who I refer to as OG Baby Yoda. OG it's Baby Yoda. It's one to one. It is not even. <laughs> you just like cut that silhouette and yeah. put it. The cooing of the baby singing. Mm-hmm. It's fuck. It's just Gizmo again. But Spielberg uh, just wanted to take a step back uh, and talk about a couple of things. Spielberg picked up the script because he said it was one of the most original things I've come across in many years which is why I bought it and it was also inspired the his original script was inspired by the disgusting loft that Chris Columbus lived in at night he said uh, what sounded like a platoon of mice would come out uh, and to hear them skittering around in the blackness was really creepy also, Amblin Entertainment was a production company founded in 1981 by Spielberg and producers Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall after the success of Jaws, Close Encounters, and Raiders. And it was called Amblin because that was the name of Spielberg's first commercial release. His short film, Amblin, was about two hitchhikers in the desert, uh, and it was released in 1968, which gave him his start. 
And that's what brings us over to Joe Dante. Unless you have something else. Oh, just that, uh, yeah, Gremlins was the first non-Spielberg production to be released under mm. the uh, Amblin banner. To get that little E.T. flyby yes, logo. the little E.T. flyby logo, which does mean so much to me. I see that logo, and I think fond memories at home watching many films. Joe Dante, he is our director. Born in New Jersey to a professional golfer father, he originally had an interest in cartoons. He got his start, which makes, I think, a lot of sense knowing that. He got his start in film under the legendary low-budget producer Roger Corman, who we should probably do an episode on someday. He was known as, quote, the Pope of pop cinema and can largely be attributed to the rise of independent film in America and the new Hollywood movement in the 60s and 70s because he gave these types of people their big start that really were the new Hollywood movement in general. Francis Ford Coppola, Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese, Jonathan Demme, and James Cameron. All of them were making films. He's very much a Lloyd Kaufman type, if you've heard our Troma episode. Very much uh, on the ground. Uh, I'd, I'd say he's like a classier Kaufman, mm-hmm. essentially. I mean, not by a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Joe Dante's first film is really strange. It's called The Movie Orgy, and it was a mashup of film clips, commercials, and film trailers that was always evolving. At one point, it ran for seven and a half hours at its longest, and that came out in 1968, so obviously an art film. His directorial debut was co-directed by Alan Arkush, and it was called Hollywood Boulevard. It was based on a bet that he had made to make the cheapest ever film for Corman's New World Pictures, and it consisted of a lot of already shot footage by New World Pictures. In 1978, Dante directs the horror comedy Piranha, inspired by Spielberg's Jaws. So here we go. Here's Dante's Not, first like, horror comedy Almost less work. inspired and more directly ripped. Yeah, like, like a parody, blatantly, of, a parody yeah. of Jaws, yeah. uh, full on. And finding those that horror comedy footing. I, di- I didn't realize, too, how similar, because you have like Toxic Avenger on the trauma side mm-hmm. uh, as their horror comedy. He then goes on to direct some episodes of Police Squad, as well as the Ramones movie Rock and Roll High School. But it isn't until The Howling in 1981, uh, which is known for its special effects done by the legend Rick Baker, who ended up stepping away about halfway through the film to go do American Werewolf in Paris. And people always talk about how similar those two movies were in terms of their release. And then the other legend took over Rob Botton who did The Thing and RoboCop. And this is also a horror comedy that does very well and is also very notable for its special effects. And Spielberg sees the howling and says, that's the guy for Gremlins and ends up bringing him in on the project. Also, though, he already initially is invited to direct one of the segments in the Spielberg produced, right? I believe any directs one of the segments of the anthology movie, Twilight Zone, the movie. And no, that no. is like, probably might be my favorite segment, the one that he does, because it's fucking crazy. Probably, I mean, De- Death at 10,000 Feet or whatever is probably the best one, but it's A Good Life is so weird. And talk going back on his cartoon background it's a little boy whose mental powers have essentially taken all these people in this house prisoner and everything is like this terrifying cartoon come to life that he's using to just fuck with people the jack-in-the-box really sticks yeah the jack-in-the-box it is freaky deaky and i don't really there's not much comedy in that one it's more just terrifying but with cartoony elements to it that just makes it somehow even more horrifying So Dante said, 
I was down to my last few bucks before I got the Gremlins job. I directed The Howling, which had done well, but the company had gone out of business before they could pay me. When Steven Spielberg's script arrived, I was convinced he'd sent it to the wrong address. And Dante ends up, yeah, reworking the script with Spielberg, with Columbus, that, you know creating that a small town setting so this is the crazy thing that uh uh in the pre-production that got me was chris columbus never intended for this movie to be made for the simple purpose that the technology did not exist there was no Mm. way to film all this shit happening like he just wrote it for the fuck of it just you know some intense imagery. a spec script if you don't know that is literally just a script you are writing for your resume so that you can show people hey i can write a script and uh as part of the pre-production Holden, we've talked about it and uh, Return of the Jedi with how to make Yoda. We've talked about it in Predator and how they tried to get the Predator to climb trees. Mm. And it happened in Gremlins. Yes. They tried to use a monkey. Monkey. They tried to use a monkey. Get the monkey. I, I don't know how to do this. Put a monkey on screen. Get a monkey. It I don't makes know. me so happy. Have they ever actually used a monkey in a project of I this don't, nature? I think the idea is doomed. I think the inherent <laughs> savage nature of our primate cousins I means see you it can't now. have a monkey in a costume on a, in a movie Someday set. we're going to do a we're gonna do one of these episodes on a film and we're gonna finally see and then they decided fuck the animatronics we're gonna try a monkey and then the monkey showed up on day one put out his cigarette got out there and killed it but this monkey did not the in test a, monkey that they used purportedly freaked out I have the it's uh, in an when interview they tried to with put Yahoo the, uh, when, yeah when they tried to put the gremlin mask on we him. got a Reese's monkey and got a gremlin head on him and he ran all over the editing room and shat all over everything and we realized <laughs> That that wasn't going to work. <laughs> oh, that monkey's gonna pay. Guess uh, we'll use puppets. <laughs> <laughs> so silly. I just don't even understand how you would think you would even be able to direct a monkey to the level that you would need to direct a monkey in a Gremlins movie. Also, Dante had to fight against the producers and Spielberg himself even to keep the speech in about the dad dressed as Santa dying trying to That's climb in the down Chris his Columbus. Own so in the Chris Columbus script, it's um the, there's a character who it's it's like warped over uh kind of a several ways but basically the owner of the bar the owner of uh Dory's Tavern where uh where Phoebe Cates works uh there was uh going to be the uh, he was the owner of an antique store so he was going to be like the older wiser figure who like kind of knew about Mogwai shit he was like kind of so he was the one who was going to deliver the the uh Chris the Santa uh speech and like it warped so many times for so many revisions that it ended up being Kate giving the speech, which gives it so much of a weirder energy because uh-huh. like if it was a grizzled guy being like, no, I'll tell you what real horror is like, you'd get the joke. That's okay. kind of funny, too, because that's definitely trying to do like the doll's eyes. Like yeah, yeah, exactly. Thing. It's ex- that's exactly what he was going for. That is 100 percent what the vibe was. But because it's sweet, innocent Phoebe Kate's. To this day, people argue about whether or not that was supposed to be played for a laugh or played for, like, a big tragic reveal. And Dante really fought to keep it in because he felt that it encapsulated the entire vibe of the movie, that it was at both time, both points ludicrous and terrifying. And that's why he wanted it, I think, so badly, even though I would say it's, it comes off more tragic than comedic. After about a week, the police gave up. My mother was close to a nervous breakdown. The rest of us weren't eating. We couldn't sleep. Everything was falling apart. It was snowing outside. The house was cold. I threw some logs on the fire. That's when I noticed the smell. The firemen came. They broke through the chimney top. We were all waiting, expecting them to pull out some dead cat or bird. Instead, 
they pulled out my father. I hear those sleigh bells <laughs> ringling, ding, ding, ding-a-ling, do. Because in lovely weather for us, they'd like to get with you. Aren't you glad to hear that song one more time after the holidays, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen? If you're listening to this months later, then that's going to make no sense to you, but this is coming out right after This movie came out not right on Christmas. It came we- out in the middle of July. It's, it's absurd. Anyways. Let's talk about this cast. Phoebe Cates cast as Billy's girlfriend, Kate. She came from a TV and Broadway family, and she started modeling at the age of 10 before moving on to the School of American Ballet, but ended up pursuing acting due to an injury. Her acting debut was in a movie called Paradise, which featured several nude scenes of her, even though she was just 17 at the time. Isn't it was that a fun? different era. The you know She hates it. She <laughs> Right after making the movie, she like refused to do any press for it because she felt so terrible about uh, what she did in it. Also, though, that's interesting because she would go on immediately to do that famous bikini drop scene in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And at this point, she's established herself in her career as this more raunchy actress that's willing to appear nude at a very young age in films and not necessarily this super innocent person that is Billy's girlfriend, Kate. (laughs) But that's where Zach Galligan comes in, cast as Billy. Uh, he, He was an unknown at the time, having never done a feature film. Spielberg pushed for him getting cast because of the chemistry he had with Cates. Galligan said, I'd already auditioned for parts with Phoebe Cates before and felt very comfortable with her. When it came to the session for Gremlins, I rested my head on her shoulder and gazed at the camera. I'm told Steven Spielberg said, oh my God, look at that. He's in love with her already. I don't need to see anything else. He also said, I was just a deeply terrified, inexperienced young actor doing my best not to get sacked. But you know what? I think that led to a great performance for him because the whole time he's getting terrorized by these gremlins, he's in the mental state of a first time actor terrified by this film set (laughs) making, you know, and not wanting to for anything to fuck up. Also, man, I just love all those scenes where he gets covered by the orange goop (laughs) and like all that stuff is so good. And like I said before, there really is something about him where you you're both rooting for him and you're enjoying him just be terrified because he's just fun to watch in that space. So the character of Billy Peltzer is really weird. I it's because you can tell as the movie goes on, how many script revisions there were because like, why is his best friend a 10 year old? Yeah. Why is he kind of this aw shucks teen, but he works at a bank tell. Why is he bringing his dog to the bank? (laughs) Um, That's unnecessary. uh, (laughs) Why does everybody love his dad, even though his shitty dad, none of his inventions work and the family's going bankrupt. (laughs) It's this weird mix of like youthful, like every American kid. But then the, the, there was originally going to be more in the movie about his cartooning, uh, career because uh, you know he's drawing uh, Mrs. Beasley and he says like oh I want to be a cartoonist and um, the original idea you can see kind of shapes of it uh, his cartoon character was going to be like Gorlock the Troll Hunter or something like that like very D&D uh, influence and again this was new and exciting at the time what big media thing was coming up that involved killing lots of small goblin creatures it was fucking Dungeons and Dragons so mm-hmm. he was going to be his character was supposed to be this Conan the Barbarian uh, empowerment figure. Before Gizmo was introduced as kind of the fun dog sidekick, it was really about him manning up and like taking the sword off the wall and becoming this like barbarian hero. Gotcha. So uh, you don't get any of that in the movie. You don't get any of that. Besides the sword on the wall. You get the sword on the wall and the weird thing where the guy looking at his drawing is Chuck Jones in the bar. So at once he's like all American Oshuk's kid, but he's also like the fucking 
kid who's like bound for college who's sick of his hometown because everyone's like he's really annoyed by everyone he's he doesn't like mr putterman he doesn't like his boss he doesn't like the evil lady who's threatening mm. threatening to murder his yeah. dog constantly <laughs> fun and even like his his mom is like kind of a tragic like beleaguered housewife like it's it's very weird how much kind of like nostalgia and simmering hatred there is for small town life in this movie. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because all of those things you described are true. And yet he's still very lovable and likable in the film. And, but, but uh, the weirdest moment for me rewatching it, especially the first one, because I think everything goes out the window in the second one. Like when no, it comes to character development, the second and stuff one like is that. a fuck you to the idea yeah, of making a of movie. making it. Yeah. Like, it was, it was literally Dante just being like, Oh, you need me to make one of these fine. Fuck you. Then. <laughs> and it's great. We'll, we'll get into yeah. that. But, the thing with Billy, the character of Billy, the one thing that makes me crazy in this movie that makes no sense to me as for him as a likable character is the science lab. When the guy's just like, you can just spare me one of these, right? And he's just <laughs> like, yeah. And he's just like, knows exactly what the scientist guy is going to do. A bunch of weird, mean tests on him. And yet he's completely fine with handing over this gremlin. I just thought that was, or this uh, mogwai mm-hmm. at that point. I just thought that was a little out of character and bizarre. But you're right. There are there are elements where if you look at him, you're like, this is he's not that great. All uh, right. Now we've also got Corey Feldman that you mentioned as well. This is the first movie that established Corey Feldman as a child actor, as he had primarily uh, done whoops, commercials. That was a mistake. Yeah, that <laughs> didn't work out too hot for him. The supporting cast was like a bunch of notable film veterans. Glenn Turman as the high school science teacher that we just mentioned. He's the mayor in The Wire that says, uh, she. Oh, I did not. I, his voice was so distinctive and I didn't put two and two together. He's that guy. He also got his start at the age of 12 in the original Broadway production of A Raisin in the Sun. Then there was the World War II vet played by Dick Miller who was in more than 180 films, including a lot of Roger Corman-produced movies, which I'm sure is how he got this role. The Father Rand was played by Hoyt Axton, who was a country music singer-songwriter that played the father in The Black Stallion. I think he is great. I always remembered him fondly. Because he has such weird energy. The fact that, like, Mm -hmm. the movie is bookended by his weird, like, voice being like, Sometimes the thing you got to do at Christmas is uh, you've got to stick up for a story. You got to be careful. Like, it's just ramble. Every one of his, like, he's terrible as a salesman. Like, the character is supposed to be like a Ron Papil, like, uh, you know, shifty inventor businessman, like a salesman guy. His whole point is he's a annoying, forward, uh, extroverted salesman. And in every scene, it's like, Hey, let me get a load of this. You want to, you yeah, want to brush your comes teeth? off as modest and not necessarily. Yeah, brush I could agree with you on that one. Also, the whoever did the uh, industrial design on the bathroom buddy yes. captures perfectly the <laughs> 1980s shit tchotchke gift. Yeah. It's kind of uncanny. Like, I, rem- I think point. I had one of those in my house when I was like a little kid. Yeah, the bathroom buddy. Oh, you just got to love it when he gets sprayed with that toothpaste. <laughs> and then again with shaving cream. Yes. And then like a third. Same gag twice. I think there's a third. I think there's more. I think there's a third toothpaste gag the, in the there. The funny one with the with the shaving cream, though, is Billy, you know that these things are always <laughs> fucked up. Whoa, what's this button do? Like, come on, man. That's just on you at that point. The amount of like defeated hope in his heart when he like goes to get the egg cracker working. He's oh, like, yeah. it's not going to work. My father <laughs> is a broken man. It's not going to work. 
At least he has a sense of humor about it. The whole family does. Key Luke played the part of Mr. Wing. He was 80 at the time, but he had such a youthful appearance that they still needed old pa- person makeup. Isn't that amazing? An 80-year-old man needed old person makeup. Oh, wait. Uh, one more thing. Judge sure. Reinhold as Gerald, who is uh, there for the first, in like an early scene. It looks like he's going to get set up as like the bully character. And he's <laughs> supposed to be this like, you know, a uh, go-go 80s yuppie archetype. Yes. He, uh... You know, following up from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, he harasses Phoebe Cates. Yes. And then he just disappears. He's, he's just, just gone. Yeah, he's I thought gone. about that. I'm shocked that he didn't get his comeuppance in the a later scene by a gremlin or two. In the movie, in the original script, he's supposed to get chased into the bank where he locks himself in the vault and goes mad. Mm, interesting. But instead, they just have this weird passive-aggressive scene where Judge Reinhold he's a dick dunks and on our fucking hero. Pieces out. Never gets comeuppance. It's like for the first time it's ever happened in an 80s movie. Yeah, it's true. So the special effects and puppetry, they were originally, yes, going to use monkeys. We already talked about that. The puppets were small and made of rubber, and some were mechanical. And they were designed by Chris Wallace, who had worked on Piranha for Joe Dante, which, again, I'm sure is why he got the job, and would go on to be a creature consultant on Return of the Jedi and have a creature effects on the fly. Mm -hmm. And he ended up directing the fly, too. That was his first directing film, which is why he couldn't do Gremlins 2, the new batch. So we'll talk about who does that. Spoiler alert, it's Rick Baker. We'll talk about it. But before we get into that, the gizmo puppets were the most frustrating because they were small and they broke down a lot. Also, also, I never knew this, that Howie Mandel was the voice of Gizmo. I didn't know it. And it makes sense. It's the same as the Bobby's World voice. Yeah, it's the Bobby's World voice. They just sped it up a little bit. But Um. yeah. Uh, If you haven't seen Bobby's World, it's Howie Mandel's cartoon about essentially his childhood. And he does this. He's he's known for doing this very, uh, this little boy voice. Yeah. That he's done in a lot of his stand-up and stuff as well. It's big, big on that little little tiny boy voice. Multiple sources pointed to the fact that um, because Gizmo does like a parroting kind of, uh, he just kind of repeats back other people's lines, that Howie Mandel had to re-record Gizmo's lines in every language. Yes. So even if you saw it in Estonian... Gizmo was still get, getting those zingers off in and the native language. apparently that is what they attributed to why it was so well-received internationally, mm. was Howie went Mandel actually doing those re-recordings. Dante said, Howie's performance was a major part of making the creature credible. For Gizmo's singing, we auditioned loads of professionals, including an opera singer, but ended up using this little girl with a lovely voice found by Jerry Goldsmith, who wrote the score. Jerry Goldsmith we'll get into in just a little bit, but he is a legend. So many legends involved in, in these movies. It's I, I, absurd. I understand he's a legend, but it feels weird that, like, the legendary composer behind... It's such a memorable score. It sticks with you. It's such a memorable score. And they do. he does really interesting things with the way that he ties the Gizmo score into that score. Also, I love to just that like the gremlins just know their own score. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They they just know their own score. They know everything. Dueling motifs. I think that's really rad. (laughs) 
now we've got uh, Mandel. Mandel, we're still on Mandel. He was suggested for the project by another voice actor who performed the voice of Stripe named Frank Welker. Frank Welker. I, I want to do an entire episode. We need to do an entire this episode. Is gonna, this is dark as shit, Holden. Get you ready to get dark? You ready to okay. get fucking dark? This is With the fucking Welker? blackness in my soul. Go to the Welker zone? He's been so active for so long, mm-hmm. and he is so Sexu- fucking old. sexuality? Oh, you're probably, talking about as a voice probably. actor. As a voice actor, like literally from Hanna Barbera all the way to modern movies. I bet Frank Welker fucks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that like as soon as he dies, we're doing a yeah. <laughs> episode on Scooby Doo, Megatron, everything else, F- what, everything. Futurama, everything. Uh, everything. Frank Welker's done everything. He's the one who suggested Howie Mandel to get the part, and he is the voice for Stripe, and he will also be the voice for the Stripe clone in the sequel. Same, same Gremlin. Dante said the sets were generally built up. Have you off- ever seen both of them in the same time in the same place? That's right. That's oh, right. Stripe and, Mo- and Mohawk. Mm-hmm. No, I have not seen them both in the same place. Same gremlin. Dante uh, spoke of the sets, saying they were generally built up off the floor so the puppeteers could be underneath operating the monsters. We used marionettes in a couple of scenes, but they're not especially convincing. Good puppetry is an art. When it's done as well as it was in Gremlins, CGI technology can't do it any better. And I fucking agree with that. It's so much better than CGI. There's something about, like, yeah, you can do a CGI character in a movie that is effective. You can. Sure. It happens. But Misa, absolutely, 100% sure of that, <laughs> right? Um, But in all those big Gremlin scenes when there's actual hundreds of them all, like, clambering around moving as individuals... It just it's it's it feels real. It feel like the magic of the movies is a hundred percent in flux. Oh yeah, and um, it helps the actors. Gall- Galligan said it was also beneficial having practical special effects because I was reacting to a thing that was really there in front of me, as opposed to stuff you are attempting to imagine as you would with CGI. You can even see it in the performance of the dog Barney, which must be one of the top ten animal performances in movies. He was convinced the puppets were real. And it's so true. It's so I feel like true. there should be a parenthesis. Zach Galligan should have a parenthesis being like, uh, it, you know, it's so much easier to act alongside puppets in CGI. I would imagine no one's asked me to act alongside yeah. CGI's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But I'm sure that's the case. And I would love to do a crazy puppet movie like this as an actor. It would be so much fun. And yeah, I, I love all of the practical effects in this film. I think they're fantastic. And everything just looks so crazy because it's so it's so practical. It was actually filmed. Uh, it was actually the same backlot and set that was used to become Hill Valley from the Back to the Future movies. Another Amblin Productions. Interesting. Yeah. That score, Jerry Goldsmith. We just talked about him. Yes. Bam, 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 bam. <laughs> I get it. But come on. Planet of the Apes. Patton. Chinatown. Alien. Remind me if you heard that one before. How did the alien Secret of Nim? Oh wow! That's... We've done, by the way, we've done episodes on like all of these, multiple <laughs> of these, and Total Recall among many others. And he wanted to convey quote the mischievous humor and mounting suspense of Gremlins. And I think he did nail it personally, Jake. Even though you hate him, which is interesting. I don't hate him. I just think he's uh, you know. Just... Before we started this recording, I said I would like to say kind words about Jerry Goldsmith. And Jake just turned to me and said, first of all, I might be racist. And second of all, I hate him. And I was like, wow, that is some really crazy things to say off microphone. (laughs) And then I said it on microphone, Jake, so now you're busted. In 1984, 
a couple of films came out. Gremlins, yes, that was one of them, sure, Jake. But also Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And these types of movies, all you had back then was PG and R. Nothing in between. If you're listening to this, you if this experience happened to you, you are officially old enough to be my friend. If not, sorry, you're a baby and legally I can't talk to you. Uh, also, baby, let's check this out. Uh, Jaws was rated PG. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Holden, remember being a child in the 80s and early 90s and you would rent a PG video and there were titties in it somehow and it <laughs> yeah. blew your fucking mind? You're like, what is happening? This whole world gone mad? That's because there was no PG-13 rating and it was really these movies that established it. In fact, it's hilarious to me because the first Gremlins is rated PG and Gremlins 2, the new batch, is rated PG-13 and Gremlins 2, the new batch, I think is way less fucked up than the first Gremlins. The first Gremlins has the classic, the microwave mm -hmm. exploding moment. And the peeler juicer. Classically, uh, a mother ran out of the premiere showing of the film and ran up to Joe Dante in the lobby of the cinema to scream at him after the exploding microwave moment saying this is in no way suitable for children, <laughs> which I kind of agree with. Mm -hmm. They even made it, because I think they bled red blood in the first one, but then they just No, they're, they're green blood in oh, the first Oh, it's green one. blood in the yeah. first one? I was trying to remember whether or not, and I think that's choices like that, but that's weird because Gizmo totally bleeds red blood. Oh, the Mogwai's yeah, bleed red blood. Yeah, when he gets cut. That's, what? Uh, and they, he, uh, the scientist extracts red blood from the other Mogwai. Also, is that point when they were watching the vi science video about the heart in the science class, and he's like, your body p p pumps like something. A some bathtub full of blood. Yeah, it was like a gallon of blood in less than a second. And I was like, that stresses me out for some reason. <laughs> And I think I have, like, OCD issues because of that statement. I was like, I don't like that. I just got more freaked out by that. Than Holden, the we are all water balloons filled with blood in a yes. microwave called life. I'm aware I'm aware of that, but just hearing the, the, the basic facts of it all. Anywho, back to the rating thing. Red Dawn ended up being the first movie to actually have the PG-13 rating. But it was because largely is attributed, rather, to Gremlins and Temple of Doom. It's it's attributed to the fact that Spielberg had enough uh, industry muscle to actually inf like get that change going. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we mentioned this earlier, but I remember this especially, and I forgot about this element. Gizmo in that pink Cadillac. It's a um, Cadillac, right? It's the little pink Cadillac. That is the most... 80s fucking thing. Mm -hmm. I think if you wanted to, if, if an alien came down and was like, what were the 80s? I would just show him Gizmo in that pink Cadillac, right? <laughs> and be like, it was this. And they nailed it. And of course, that's probably Spielberg's element mm -hmm. in all of this. But they nailed having just an incredibly marketable thing, thing to put on a keychain, to put on the to, to Garfield on the inside of your car with the suction cups. All that stuff just nailed it with Gizmo. So you had so I remember Chachki shops just being out the wazoo with Gizmo stuff. No, uh, Spielberg was so much on Team Gizmo that he re-edited uh, re the ending to make it look like uh, they had shot it. That Gizmo like starts pulling up the blinds, but Billy goes ahead and opens them and kills uh, Stripe. But, yeah, the Gizmo saves but, the day. But Spielberg went in and made sure it was explicitly Gizmo yes. that saves the day. Had to be Gizmo. Um, well, especially because, 
And they talk about this. I think there was the element. There was, there was a. I think they were trying to make a Gremlins three at one point, and I think they were going to play with the whole idea that well, if Gizmo is the sole reason for this crazy bullshit happening every time, like maybe we should end Gizmo or at least have that concept in the film. Like, should Gizmo be killed? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's so true that that Gizmo would be the sole purpose for all of this terrible shit happening in this town and later in that building in New York City. And you still have no qualms with Gizmo. Absolutely. <laughs> like, completely well, there's 100%. a weird I don't want to get to. Um, have you ever seen the Institute of Gremlins two studies? No. So it's a for it was a very funny, very active uh, Twitter account for what was probably, I don't know, like uh, three, four years. And the thing is, is like they make a weird ethical statements about gremlins. The idea that under Mr. Wing raised properly, the Mogwai is this well-behaved, adorable, loving creature tainted by alcohol and cigarettes and drugs and television and Disney movies. Like the idea that America itself is a corrupting uh, negative force in the world, that it's, it's modernity that makes these mogwais into these monsters. Mm-hmm. Whereas raised properly uh, with respect for nature and respect for the environment and ah. respect for tradition, the mogwais right. are peaceful and good. Cause it's always, you know, he's always, the whole thing with him learning, him teaching him to watch television. Yes. Is a big one. And also, just inherently what gremlins do is fuck with machinery mm-hmm. and technology. So I could totally see that. Oh, God. This is this is very bad to me. Um, there was a... I'm, there's nowhere else to talk about this. There was a novelization made by a guy named George Pipe. You hear, the, you hear that name? George Pipe. And he went into how... The Mogwais were a genetically engineered alien race meant to start peace in the galaxy. And then they got corrupted by space radiation, and that's why they turn evil. The movie, it's the the book itself is full of weird asides where it's in like Gizmo's inner voice, and there's entire conversations between Gizmo and Stripe. This is this okay. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read this now. It was an elliptical line of reasoning, but with the devious stripe, one had to be wily. There is an old adage, Gizmo said. It says that the opportunity should be grasped when it arises, or that moment will never occur again. So you think we should reproduce now, said Stripe through narrowed eyes. I am not your advisor. It just seems to me, liar, Stripe shot back. Do you take me for a fool? Do you really think I'll fall for such obvious psychological maneuvering? Gizmo, summoning all of his acting ability, did his best to look innocent. What? (laughs) Joe Dante has disavowed everything from the Gremlins novelization, but it is a psychopathic journey. That's amazing. Also, this film and the sequel led to many video games, such as Gremlins on the Atari 2600. They all sucked. And the uh, films that inspired, we already mentioned Critters and Ghoulies. There was also Troll and Hobgoblins and Munchies. All tiny creatures. I mean... Critters rules. I'll give Critters a, a, a handshake if, uh, for as of a, if I could shake hands with the franchise. Uh, to 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 give you the extent to which Gremlins mania had gotten into the mainstream culture, Mary, can you play the 1984 Gizmo Hasbro doll commercial? This the honestly the jingle is a bop. I, I can't tell you why the jingle is a fucking bop. It's fun to care for Gizmo. Imagine he's your pet. It's fun to care for Gizmo. I'm never getting wet. Yeah. 
sure to keep him out of the light And never, never feed him after midnight Yes, never It's fun to care for Gizmo He's a lovable pet I'll take care of you, Gizmo so the first film is such a success that the studio immediately wants Dante to go into production on the sequel. But he decides, you know, blah, blah, blah. The first one had a solid ending, blah, blah, blah. The second would just be about making money, yada, yada, yada. Right? Also, he just didn't want to make movies for a while because yeah. it was so taxing. It was a very difficult film to make, as ones are that involve heavy special effects and puppetry. And stop motion. Don't forget yes. extensive stop motion animation. The shittiest, most frustrating <laughs> yeah. form of animation. So the studio moves forward with Alden, but can't get a writer or director or idea that they really like. Then they offer Dante complete and creative control. Oh, big mistake over the project and triple the budget. I mean, not big mistake for me, big mistake for them, though. <laughs> wanted to do a, they, he wanted to do a satire on both Gremlins and sequels in general and was able to get away with a lot because of how bad the studio just needed that gizmo bucks back in their life. The only rule was they had to get it out by Christmas. He pulls in Charlie Haas as screenwriter. Before Gremlins 2, Haas had written a, the screenplay for Martians Go Home, starring Randy Quaid about a songwriter who accidentally invites a billion mischief-making Martians to planet Earth, who apparently, I guess, are all played by stand-up comedians from the 80s and 90s. I've this never heard of this. sounds like the comedy boom <laughs> just before it busted from back then, and it was Haas's idea to set it in New York City. He also, by the way, plays one of the scientists. He's the one that gets handed the gross tissue by Christopher Lee. That's right. You heard me correctly. Christopher Lee's in this movie. We will talk about it. But in order to have uh, avoid having the gremlins attack the whole city, Haas came up with con confining it to Clamp's smart building. So the film was originally longer, but Spielberg had it shortened on the grounds that there were, quote, too many gremlins, <laughs> which I would say one could argue there are. Even after they shortened it, there's a lot of gremlins. To which Joe Dante said, you know, the movie isn't called Humans. <laughs> so you've got Phoebe Kate, Zach Galligan, and Dick Miller all returning for the sequel, as well as Key Luke as Mr. Wing, who only made like maybe one movie after this before he passed away as one of his final films. The renowned actor Christopher Lee, as I mentioned before, plays mad scientist Dr. Catheter. Fantastic They name. say that name out loud and nobody mm -hmm. giggles. And no one giggles. Mm -hmm. It is just so... But th that, I think, as much as the Looney Tunes intro sets the tone, just mm -hmm. that's a great example of what this movie is. This is, is... Everything is out the window now. There's in no way trying to make an actual legitimate horror comedy. So I... When I rewatched Gremlins 2, I noticed that the animation was a little bit off uh, in that weird Looney Tunes intro. Like, oh, there's okay. just something a little rough about it. I, I, I couldn't quite put my hand on it. And I looked it up, and that entire intro and the interstitials that happen after the credits were hand animated oh. by Chuck Jones, yes. who had made the cameo in the first one, and he went out of retirement to do it. Because him and Dante were very, very good friends. In fact, Dante, I wish he made this movie. He always wanted to make a movie called Termite Terrace, which is about the golden age of Warner Bros. cartoons. Well, he oh. did end up making Looney Tunes back in action. Oh, so, cool. I, yeah. And I meant to bring this up as well. And I thought it was a cute little nod. And the end, one of the, that end section in the toy store of Gr the first Gremlins Gizmo is hiding behind an E.T. doll, mm -hmm. which is surrounded by Looney Tunes dolls. I forget. I think it's Bugs Bunny and maybe Davy Duck or somebody like mm -hmm. that. And that is totally a nod to the fact that it's Amblin Entertainment and Warner Brothers as the distributor. 
which I thought was a cool little thing. There's a million of those in this movie, though. Yeah. Like, that is one example where this movie just is a million. At one point, a gremlin is getting a Warner Brothers tattoo on his arm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I thought that was really neat that, that Chuck Jones did that. That is so cool. So, we've got Charlie Haas. He's setting it in New York. You've got the actors returning. You've got Christopher Lee in there. And you've got this new concept for the gremlins. He wanted them to all have a distinct personality and appearance, which is why you have George, which is black without a stripe, who resembles classic Hollywood actor Edward G. Robinson. And if you look him up, if you look up the grim, that gremlin next to uh, Edward G. Robinson, is it's kind of amazing. How, and his friend Lenny is for that yes. George, Lenny, Mice, and Men. And so Lenny is the one with the buck teeth. And they are both named after the Of Mice and Men characters, yes, uh, which is, if you don't know Of Mice and Men, check it out. It's very good. Steinbeck, very good. Then there's Daffy, who is, of course, named after Daffy Duck, Warner Brothers again. googly-eye gremlin. And you have Mohawk, who has a mohawk. It's just right. (laughs) He becomes the spider gremlin, which is weird. (laughs) Yes, Yes, he does. There's a, by the way, there's a spider gremlin. By the way, by the way, if you want to watch a really funny sketch, there's yeah. this key and peel sketch, which is fucking hilarious, which is uh, they're legitimately trying to remake, the, uh, to make a sequel in the writer's room. And there's some guy that comes in. He's like, I'm this, he's the 80s sequel specialist and just gets them all to come up with like the dumbest fucking stupid idea possible. Your turn. Uh, electricity gremlin. You just said a word. Then gremlin. <laughs> you have the mind of a child. It's in the movie. It's such a good sketch. So but the, the reality of it was, uh, that was, yeah, you said it was to entice Rick Baker. He didn't want to just yes. remake Chris Wallace's uh, designs. He wanted stuff that he could put his his distinctive mark on. And, of course, Warner Brothers was happy because that means more toy designs. So everyone was happy with this scenario, even though it is very weird. The idea of the genetics lab is weird. The idea of the electricity gremlin is weird. The bat gremlin. It's all very weird. It's an interesting thing with special effects and makeup, too, with Rick Baker as an example in Gremlins 2. He just didn't want to come in and iterate on someone else's work that's not his deal he wants to create something from the ground up so the only way they could get him to sign on is initially he was said no was hey we're just gonna go batshit you can go crazy with the gremlin designs we can we can go nuts with them. you don't have to make them the normal ass gremlins and that's where they add that whole genetics lab element to it all so that he gets so they could just give themselves the perfect excuse to have the most nonsense ass gremlins which is why too there's more stop motion in this one because the bat gremlin needed stop motion. They had a lot more of that going on. The, the bat gremlin part. The whole and this is why for me, I was just like, this is the best movie. There's just it's completely It's no- off the rip. They make fun so as you watch the movie, they break a million different rules. One of the first things that happens is Gizmo escapes Mr. Wing's antique shop because it's getting torn down and there's shots of just Gizmo walking around in broad daylight. Yeah. That's just, the movie should be oh, over. Right. He's just walking around in broad even, daylight. I didn't even think about He's just that. there. He's just walking. <laughs> it's dumb. Uh, um, the, uh, the characters in the movie start talking about how they start mocking Billy being like, oh, wait, what do you mean if they eat after yes. midnight? What if they started eating something and then it's stuck in his teeth? Does that count? Or, or what if they're in honestly, an airplane? Honestly, just the time change. It's midnight. It's after midnight somewhere. Yeah. What are you, so what are you talking about? Sense. Uh, the fact that the brain gremlin just reaches for genetic sunblock, <laughs> which 
should be, if, if he is the brain gremlin, this is the answer to the gremlin world. They have one weakness. They have one weakness. <laughs> and there's just a bubbling vat of cure your ultimate weakness. He just shoots it into the bat gremlin, goes fuck off, and then whatever. Can we talk about the brain gremlin scared me even more than all the other gremlins? So why is that? Eight is an engineering marvel. Are you talking about him in the interview specifically? In the interview specifically, anytime he's talking, what they did was they used primitive 8-bit computers to hand program each servo motor under every, like each different pa- each motor got its own pass on the audio, the voice by Tony Randall from The Odd Couple. Um, yes, which is amazing. Yeah, he had a very prolific career. So they ha- so in a computer they programmed each little mouth muscle to act in synchronicity with all the other ones. But the rest of the puppet, the eyes, the hands, everything else, was operated by a real puppet, by several puppeteers. Because uh-huh. any animatronic that complicated needs several people working in unison to get that lifelike effect. So this thing is moving with such meticulous activity and precision that my child brain was like, there's no way this is a puppet. Puppet, there's no puppet that can do this. This is real. It's coming to get me. Ah, uh, I have to turn on all the lights when I go to sleep. <laughs> One of my favorite special effects moments is in from the franchises in Gremlins 2 when they show a close-up of the Gremlins when they get wet and look inside the bubble mm. and you can see the tiny Gremlin emerging from their back gross back bubble thing and that stuff is really well done they do that a couple times this is one of the secrets of gremlins both one and two they had to master this technique once steven spielberg was like no gizmo is the star of this movie is they created several giant sized gizmo puppets Mm, yeah so when you see gizmo in like the rambo close-ups and stuff yeah so when you see gizmo in the rambo gear that gizmo is the size of a man yeah. When he's putting together the little uh, office supplies and making the bow and arrow, those are human hands in By the way, costumes. definitely the thing that makes Gizmo like not the cutest ever plushy thing to me are definitely those very specifically, I don't know why it makes it worse, but those very well manicured fingernails on his, on his little hands oh, gross me out. I hate when they have to use a <laughs> shot of him in distress because they can't work the servo mouth to make that extreme of a expression. So they use a specially molded, scared gizmo expression. Listen, some people talk about the violence. Some people talk about the gore. What is truly existentially terrifying in the Gremlins movies are those intensely extreme moments where you see Gizmo writhing on the ground, knowing he's about to give birth against his yeah. will. <laughs> so that's weird. like ups. That's some ah. handmaiden sale well, shit. There is. I spoke about anxiety earlier when it came to the weird moment in the science room. But honestly, as a kid, the whole way that that yeah, the whole can't get him wet. Bad things will happen. Element to gr- gave gremlins gave me anxiety as a kid. I don't know. They're, a, you know. they're a walking biological weapon. Even though it's just inevitable that it's going to happen in both movies, there's something about it. You're just like, ugh, don't. Especially because, yeah, he hates it. It makes him upset. And then he gets tortured by the, all the gremlins the whole rest of the movie. There is a cut scene in Gremlins 2 where the dad was supposed to come in at the end and give Gizmo a special little raincoat that he had made. Yes. Which, to if, keep him from getting wet in the yeah. future. But that got cut for time. Also, you mentioned the Rambo thing. I just want to very, very briefly talk about how Jerry Goldsmith returns to compose the music for Gremlins 2. And one of the really cool things he does in Gremlins 2 is 
takes the Rambo theme and combines it with Gizmo's theme during that Rambo moment and does this cool musical trick where both themes connect uh, at that point in the movie, which I thought was really cool. Also, it has a pretty fun song list as well. I'm Ready by Fats Domino during that super cute gizmo dancing that's moment. Very With the twin scientists kind yeah, of bopping goes, along. Yeah, that's, that's a great moment. That apparently was uh, one of the harder shots to film and, and took the longest to put together. And Angel of Death by Slayer when fucking Mohawk's uh, evolving. So we talked about how this is a film that is both a parody of sequels and a parody of Gremlins. And it has a lot of references in it, and I wrote down a bunch of them, and I want to go over them now, Jake. Mm -hmm. Would you like to do that with me? Mm-hmm. If you said no, you know how sad I'd been? It would have been a real dick move. Christmas would have been over, because it hasn't happened to us yet. And even though it's Hanukkah for you, it still would suck. I <laughs> just know that it would suck. The opening shots of NYC are all stock footage from Superman for The Quest for Peace. The poster for Do the Right Thing, Spike, arguably Spike Lee's greatest film ever, is in the background of one of the shots of the city. You can see that. That essentially promptly puts it in the year 1989. Uh, Grandpa Fred, played by Robert Prosky, one of my favorite elements of the film, mm -hmm. the, the the vampire guy, based, is based on Al Lewis and the Monsters. I'd hope so, because otherwise that's weird parallel yeah. thinking. <laughs> the sci-fi film he's hosting is Octoman, which is Roy, uh, Rick Baker's first movie he ever did back in 1971. At one point, the building advertises Casablanca, this is great, as now in color and with a happier ending, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. I love all the cynical, smart building jokes. All the capitalism jokes mm -hmm. are really well played in this movie. They're not too heavy-handed. They're not too obnoxious, in my opinion. They're all shitting on giant corporation building stuff without being too, uh, too like in your face, I felt like. Uh, this is quoted from the Institute of Gremlins 2 Studies. Uh, but this has been tracked as actually true. In March 2000, an executive has uh, sent out a memo quoting the scene from Gremlins 2 where the brain gremlin says to investors, invest in canned food and shotguns. It was intended as a joke, but the resulting panic is what triggered the burst of the dot-com bubble. Ha! Ah. Later on, in the monitors in the control room, you can also see It's a Wonderful Life in color. So that playing that joke a couple times, even subtly. At one point, Daffy sits on a model with a Daffy the gremlin, not the Daffy, not the duck, mm -hmm. sits on a model with biplanes flying around his head, which is a reference to King Kong. The security team finding all the holes in that feed after midnight rule. Oh, we already talked about that. That is actually a response to a lot of fan criticism from the first film. In a way, Gremlins 2 is like the Scott Pilgrim versus the world of the 80s and 90s. The it's, 80s shit show movie. Yeah. yeah, completely. One of the biggest meta parody moments this is one of, one of the best. Leonard Malton appears <laughs> on his show, which he has. A, he, so he's got a fake review show on the Clamp Cable Network in which he shits on the first Gremlin movie before they attack him. And then he takes it all back. And he classically did actually shit all over the first Gremlins movie on his real life review show. Apparently, Dante was very hurt by that initially, but then later approached him about doing the role. And I think that they were both really good sports about doing that. I think that's so cool. It You have to understand, at the time that it was filmed and released, the idea of there being a cooking channel, a golf channel, yeah. a horror channel were hilarious exaggerations <laughs> of where media was going. But they knew it was headed there. I mean, cable was yeah. the talk of the town at that point. 
So you also have Christopher Lee's moment with the Bat Gremlin, uh, and that's due to his own famous portrayal of Dracula through the years. There's also a Batman insignia reference in that. It's less so much of a reference as just, it's just the thing. It's just the thing. And then can we fucking talk about Hulk Hogan's in the movie? <laughs> so I'm all baked out last night. It's like it's like one in the morning. Have you forgotten about this and scene? And I had forgotten about the whole thing, that the whole movie stops working, and that Hulk Hogan then screams at the gremlins. And I'm just sitting there in my PJs. I'm just like, fuck yeah, he's in this movie. And fuck yeah, they made this choice. And this uh, Dante has said that this is one of his favorite moments in the whole thing. That he just loves that they let him get away with that. And they even had to do a test audience just to prove to the executives that no, people wouldn't think that the movie actually was taken melted. over by gremlins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and weirdly enough, this is so strange. I appreciate it, but also it bums me out that Hulk Hogan wasn't in it. In the VHS version of the movie. I, I, did you find, did you track this down I didn't and watch, watch it? it? It's way shittier than the Hulk Hogan thing. I bet it was because it's, they just use like a, an impersonator doing a John Wayne voice and they mess with like they make it look instead of you know the film falling apart inside of a movie theater that it's getting screwed up inside of your tv like the the vcr is getting fucked with by gremlin it's nowhere near as good it's i know such... I, they should have just kept it how it was so people didn't see if you hadn't seen it in the theater you wouldn't have seen the whole Hogan version until apparently the dvd release yeah which is amazing. But I just, I, I mean, again, I mean, we're, I'm just taking a pit stop here to just say one more time, fuck yeah, Hulk Hogan's and Gremlins 2, the new batch. That just gives you a, I, as himself, <laughs> scree- as himself in the real world, screaming at the Gremlins to put back on the movie that you've been watching this whole time. Gremlins 2, the new batch. <laughs> the fact that just, they they know that they were, they were in a first movie and they're mad that Leonard Maltin didn't like it. And then they try to stop the other movie from being viewed by us, the audience. They also put on a vintage nudie film called Holiday, uh, Volleyball Holiday in place of Gremlins 2 until Hulk Hogan screams at them. That's the black and white movie. Well, that's where the movie lost me because clearly Hulk Hogan would rather watch the vintage <laughs> would rather pornography. watch Volleyball Holiday, absolutely. So just I think that is the perfect example of the shit show that is Gremlins 2. And yet... I have a great time watching it. Also, you've got Dante included the bizarre end of the world message from the cable show. Remember when they put the tape mm-hmm. on, n- noting, you know, it's it's all we've reached the apocalypse. He apparently put that in because he found out that a lot of major U.S. networks actually have one of those pre-recorded, ready to play, which is kind of I don't know if that's still the case. I doubt it, but uh, that it's they like did that back thing on uh, British submarines where there's a letter from the prime minister that says whether or not you should retaliate with nukes, right? Also, another great example of the difference between Gremlins and Gremlins to the new batch is that moment when Kate has another monologue like the first movie, and then they just cut her off because they're like, no, we're not going there with it. And it definitely sounds like the beginning of a molestation story, by the way. Zach Galligan actually, uh, you can see him break laughing as yeah. he's trying to like get out of the shot. It's so funny. I, I just, that is such a great example of like, this was the first movie. It was like this actual attempt at a horror comedy. And this is the second movie, which is this total self-referential just comedy nutbag shit show and i'm not even laughing that much but i'm just just i'm just filled with glee watching it the entire time it's so bonkers of course lastly i have the girl gremlin which was she was just referred to as girl gremlin but of course they put out trading cards i think i had some trading cards and on the trading card she was named lady gremlina <laughs> i think now within the official lore she's known as greta 
Greta? Mm-hmm. I like Lady Grimlina. <laughs> That's the most ludicrous name ever. And she does, and the rest of the Gremlins. And she basically, bang, she bangs the doctor from oh, Voyager. Oh, yeah. Well, well, yeah. Then there's yeah, her getting, ooh, and then with the marriage thing at the end, which also means, like, Lady Grimlina's still alive. We're fucked still. Like, it's all over. Yeah, but she's going to have her babies naturally. Uh, she'll have a humanoid baby? Yeah. yeah. Even what? That's, first of all, great, great premise for Gremlins 3. Second of all, <laughs> yikes. That'd be even more terrifying. Uh, but yes, they all do a straight up send up of the musical film Dames. Which, which involves another the, 80s thing. I feel like yeah. every, every, the Muppet movie had yeah. it. Oh, everybody. Well, again, I mean, we think about now what 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 gets parodied, the stuff that we grew up yeah, watching yeah, yeah. as kids and what, what got parodied back then. Those musical films were huge yeah, w- yeah. W- for all these people growing up. But yeah, the movie is called Dames. That's where they get the performance of New York, New York from. Again, though, when you get to that point, in the movie, I mean, we have just departed so far from any kind of sense of plot or anything. And again, I'm just going to say, I'm here for it. I would love to see more movies go off the rails like this confidently and just say, fuck it, in a sequel like this. This was like way more fun to me than... I think actually, I think they would have failed if they had tried to really nail a sequel. But instead, just being like, here you go, here's this circus. May I do another reading from the Institute of Gremlins 2 studies? Please. At G2 Institute. <clears throat> Gremlins 2 is both a sequel and a mockery of sequels. The need to distinguish between satire and sincerity, art and not art, is cowardice, a fundamental misunderstanding of any advanced media environment. Language, like the Gremlins, take on a life of its own when endlessly reproduced. Satire is no longer effective because the escalating need for novelty drives reality past any attempts at satire. This is why the jokes in Gremlins 2 are no longer recognizable as jokes. (laughs) Satire does not need distinct intent. In fact, all satire will eventually become unidentifiable if given enough time. Okay, cool. I love this. I love this, so funny. this fucking uh, handle. I, yeah, I had a great time rewatching these movies. I watched them both last night and and was not upset about it in the least. In fact, I finished watching the first one and I, and I I was like, I'll take a break, you know, play played some games, and then I was just even before I meant to, I was I was thinking, you know what? I kind of just want to keep going. <laughs> I just need. And it, what's hilarious too is they're both an hour and forty five minutes, so I think they're still maybe technically shorter than just. Fellowship of the Ring Extended Edition. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's very devourable. But anyways, check it out. If you haven't seen The Gremlins before, enjoy your special treat. I hope. I hope it works for you like it works for us. It's definitely, as much as you were say, saying how every movie of that time had a parody of a big old-timey musical number like like from Dames, maybe for us just the amount of 80s that is Gremlins all sucked into one film. It, it may just be something for the folks that were born in the 80s. Gremlins 1 really felt like a time machine to 1984. Yeah. It truly... I And Gremlins 2 felt like a time machine to 1990. It really did. For sure. Yeah. Especially set in New York, the crazy, the smart building, <laughs> all of that stuff, like the fake tech stuff. We had so much of that with like, with like Back to the Future. The amount of years we, like people kept trying to make shitty video phones happen. Yes. It's like really weird. So funny. Well, I think that about covers it. That's our... 
Gremlins episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it and you want to check out more content from us or just support us further with some funds, check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew for $5 a month. You get that sweet, sweet weekly bonus content. That's right, weekly bonus content. Have you ever thought to yourself, uh, oh man, I already listened to this week's whizbrew. I wish there was more. If you're not a member of the Patreon, fella, there are hours of more whizbrew just waiting for your just gaping ear holes. Hey, and Did also that, I shouldn't have said gaping. Maybe ear. gaping's weird. Yeah. Gaping. Also, check us out in January 9th, 10th, and 11th in the Midwest. We're coming to Milwaukee, Chicago, Pontiac. We are going to have a blast. Get those tickets now. That's January 9th, 10th, and 11th in the Midwest. And you can go to Last Podcast Network forward slash P7 live to see Wizard and the Bruiser and Page 7 do live shows. And we're going to hang out afterwards. And we want to meet you guys. Please come out. It makes for a great Christmas gift. At the especially last minute, if you done fucked up on that one like I have, check us out, please. Uh, if you want to follow me further, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho, Jake. Follow me on Twitter at best Jake Young. And hey, always remember, never stop bruising and keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.